Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and this is a special bonus episode in honor of the 93rd Academy Awards, which are taking place on Sunday, April 26th. And this episode is about the subject of the book Nomadland by the journalist Jessica Bruder, which in turn was adapted into a movie directed by Chloe Zhao and starring Frances McDormand. The movie is nominated for several awards at the Oscars this year, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actress, and is a favorite to win many of those awards. I'm recording this episode in the past. So by the time you're listening to it, you will probably know already which, if any, awards the movie won at this year's Oscar ceremony. Regardless, I thought I would take this opportunity with the movie and the topic it covers in the spotlight at the moment to talk about the community of real-life nomads that are presented in the movie and the book on which it is based. In this episode, I'll be focusing much more on the material that's covered in the book Nomadland, which was written by Jessica Bruder and published by W.W. Norton & Company in 2017. The book is a work of journalistic nonfiction, so it offers a lot more academic substance with which to engage than the movie does, which is more fictionalized. But if you're interested in this topic, then I definitely recommend both watching the movie and reading the book. If you're in the United States, the movie is available on Hulu. And if you're not in the United States, then it's possibly playing in theaters near you. And it's always available through less legal means. The book is available anywhere where you buy your books. And in this episode, I'm going to be discussing the community of nomadic van dwellers who are presented in the book and movie Nomadland and the characteristics that they possess that allow them to be defined as nomadic in accordance with an anthropological definition of the term. And I'll also be discussing and situating these nomads within the larger historical context of nomadism in the United States. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks for listening. Nomadland is a story about surviving 21st century America and the choices that Americans make 
or are forced to make in order to survive. The book focuses on van dwellers, a subculture that has existed for as long as cars and vans have, but which exploded in numbers after the 2008 financial crisis, when many Americans saw the values of their homes wiped out overnight and a mass of home foreclosures occurred across the nation. No longer able to afford mortgages or rent, many people turned to living in cars, trucks, vans, mobile homes, trailers, campers, etc., where they could live free of housing costs like rent and utility bills. Many of the people who took to this lifestyle after the 2008 crash were senior citizens or people close to retirement age, but who had suddenly found that their houses, the nest eggs that they had thought would see them through their retirement golden years, didn't actually possess the stable, intrinsic worth that they had been told. Unable to afford to actually retire, unable to eke out a living on meager social security payments, and frequently also unable to find traditional white or blue-collar jobs as older workers, thousands of men and women in their 60s or older took to living in mobile homes, traveling the country and working in seasonal, often highly physical and strenuous jobs. I have to admit that when I first picked up the book Nomadland, I was fully prepared to reject the book's claims to be about an actual nomadic community. Just because someone lives in non-traditional housing like a car or van doesn't automatically make them a nomad, and just because someone moves around a lot looking for work doesn't automatically make them a nomad either, to my mind. I've talked a lot in previous episodes about the difficulties of identifying nomads versus non-nomads, the basis on which we can make such distinctions, and the unhelpfulness sometimes of the term nomad, because that term comes with a lot of preconceived notions attached and can often distort and obfuscate our understanding of actual nomadic practices. That being said, there are three criteria that I would expect to see fulfilled in order to designate a group as nomadic. And those are, one, primarily living in temporary or portable habitation, such as tents, huts, or cars. Two, moving around frequently for subsistence and sustenance, especially in migratory patterns related to the seasons. And three, a strong sense of community across a group of people practicing the same or similar type of nomadism in more or less the same geographical area. So I was definitely a bit surprised to find that the people presented in Nomadland perfectly checked all three of those boxes. I already talked about housing and the fact that these nomads live in vehicles that are both means of housing and means of transportation. Next, in the category of seasonal migrations, it becomes apparent that these nomads and their pattern of movement across the country are completely dependent on the availability of seasonal jobs. Depending on the time of year, you can find these van-dwelling nomads picking raspberries in Vermont, apples in Washington, blueberries in Kentucky, or harvesting sugar beets in Montana. You can find them at state fairs and amusement parks in the summer selling concessions, or at roadside stands selling pumpkins at Halloween and Thanksgiving, fireworks for the 4th of July, or Christmas trees in December. 
By far, one of the biggest seasonal employers of these nomads is Amazon through its program called Camper Force, which hires thousands of these itinerant workers every year to work in its fulfillment centers in the weeks leading up to the Christmas busy season. Thousands of these workers and their vans descend on Amazon warehouses across 15 states every year, where they spend long hours processing inventory and packing and shipping orders for low pay and in grueling working conditions. The third criteria I mentioned, a nomadic community and a strong sense of affiliation that a nomadic individual has to a like-minded community, is a bit harder to pin down, but it's nonetheless well-documented and well-represented in both the book and the movie Nomadland. Van dwellers meet each other through jobs like Amazon's Camper Force, but they also meet at annual van dweller gatherings. The largest one of these is called the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous and is held every January in the town of Quartzsite, Arizona. Thousands of nomads and their vehicles flock to Quartzsite every year to meet, party, welcome new members of the community, and exchange tips and tricks for life on the road. And of course, in the 21st century, van dwellers stay connected across great distances through social media and platforms like blogs, Facebook, Reddit, and YouTube. The result is that even though this community isn't connected through biological genetic ties the way most nomadic communities are, they have formed themselves into a sort of family of choice. The book Nomadland portrays van dwellers as the spiritual descendants of the first American nomads, the hobos, who traveled across America hopping freight trains in search of seasonal labor from the 1860s through the Great Depression years. And I'll return to the hobos later, but I would argue that nomadism in the United States far predates the hobos and goes back to the Native Americans. Of course, not all Native American tribes lived nomadically, but many practiced at least some degree of seasonal migration. And as we probably all know, impermanent and portable dwellings like the teepee are a vital part of Native American cultures and practices. But with colonization came the end of Native American nomadism, with the reservation system being the final death knell of nomadic tribes in the United States. There were many reasons and justifications for the implementation of the reservation system by the United States government, but certainly one of them was to force indigenous peoples to settle down and practice agriculture, confined to one area of land where they could be easily controlled and surveilled by the government. Nomads were perceived as barbaric, uncivilized, and difficult to govern, and therefore all traces of nomadism among indigenous populations were stamped out. The westward expansion of white settlers across the United States in search of cheap land on which to settle and build a farm and raise a family coincided with the final Native American tribes being pushed onto reservations. Fundamentally, ideals and ideologies like the American Dream, Manifest Destiny, Expansionism, Private Property Ownership, Land Tenure, are all inextricably intertwined with one another, and they are also all fundamentally opposed to the practice of nomadism. 
At one point in the book Nomadland, we're told about the van that's owned by one of the main figures who's profiled in the book, a woman named Linda. And it says, inside the van, it measures 10 feet from end to end, roughly the same interior length as the covered wagon that carried Linda's own great-great-great-grandmother across the country more than a century ago. There's a sort of bitter, full-circle irony here, encapsulated in the family tree of one woman. Her great-great-great-grandmother made her way west in the 19th century, benefiting from land often illegally seized from Native Americans, at the same time as those Native Americans were violently suppressed from practicing any form of nomadism. By the 21st century, the descendants of these settlers are themselves turning to nomadism, the broken promises of the American dream having eroded the land underneath their feet. Today, they make their way across and up and down the country in vehicles named after Native American peoples, like Jeep Grand Cherokee or Winnebago Spirit, an unconscious reference to the tribes who once traversed the Great Plains themselves. But, as I alluded to earlier, there was another nomadic subculture emerging at the same time as Native American nomadism was being suppressed, and that was the hobos who first appeared in the United States in the 1860s around the end of the Civil War. Veterans returning home from the war got home by hopping freight trains, which soon evolved into a distinct subculture of migrant laborers who traveled around the country by train. The number of people living as hobos increased further during the Great Depression for the same economic reasons as the number of van dwellers increased after 2008. Hobos became particularly vilified during the Great Depression, especially by outsiders who saw them as dangerous vagrants who didn't provide any value to society. In response, Hobos became a more insular and self-protecting community, with its own cultural symbolism and even language. Famously, hobos would leave signs and glyphs on the walls of buildings, conveying meaning about the building's occupants to their fellow hobos. A triangle with hands meant that the homeowner has a gun, a horizontal zigzag line meant a vicious dog, while a cat signified that the residents were friendly to hobos. The hobo visual language and associated slang parallels how modern van dwellers communicate with one another through distinct imagery and signs only intelligible to members of that community. For example, online maps that are used by van dwellers to share information about things like safe places to park their vehicles or where to do laundry or take a cheap shower. Van dwelling itself first started during the Great Depression as well, when house trailers went into mass production for the first time. At first, they were just used for camping and for leisure activities, but soon enough, people figured out that they could also replace brick-and-mortar houses. A New York Times article quoted in Nomadland wrote that, We are rapidly becoming a nation on wheels. Today, hundreds of thousands of families have packed their possessions into traveling houses, said goodbye to their friends, and taken to the open roads. More families will take to the road, making an important proportion of our people into wandering gypsies. This prediction maybe didn't come true to the extent that the author imagined, or at least it didn't at the time. 
Hobo culture and the number of van dwellers declined again after the Great Depression due to a number of reasons, including the economic rebound and changes in freight train technology that made it more difficult to hop trains, but also because at the time, these nomads didn't aspire to remain nomads forever. Rather, many of them wanted and planned to return to traditional, settled, mainstream existence as soon as the economy stabilized. This appears to be less so the case with today's van-dwelling nomads, many of whom seem to have lost any desire to go back to the way things were, instead preferring to make permanent the freedom that nomadism grants them. But there are two sides to every coin, and the flip side to the freedoms of nomadism is the myriad difficulties that nomads face from the people around them such as the dangers of living in public spaces to the stigmatization of people who are perceived as homeless. And that's not to mention that nomadism is effectively illegal in the United States in the sense that it is impossible to live without an address. Even so-called nomads need to be registered at an address somewhere in order to do things like register a vehicle or renew a driver's license, vote, pay taxes, receive social security, and so on. Nomads often use the address of a friend or family member as their own, or they obtain residency in a state with minimal residency requirements. For example, South Dakota is a favorite address haven of nomads because of how easy it is to get South Dakotan residency without actually living there. So it's impossible to be truly off the grid in the way that some of these nomads claim that they are. And also as a consequence of this, it's impossible to know how many people in the United States actually live nomadically, because in the eyes of government agencies like the DMV or the IRS, they do exist within the system, so to speak, living under the guise of these fake addresses. Despite these administrative tethers to mainstream society, many of these modern-day nomads claim connections to earlier generations of nomads, who in the minds of today's nomads become an indistinguishable mass of romanticized nomads who are interchangeably identified as gypsies, bohemians, vagabonds, tramps, or tinkers. Many of the writings by van dwellers that are quoted in Nomadland conjure up the idea of being spiritually descended from nomads from days gone by. Maybe you're descended from a gypsy, vagabond, or hobo in your past life, writes one van dweller. Another writes that van dwellers is the meeting place of a far-flung tribe. It is the circle of elders, the nurturing cradle for those who find themselves entering this cultural world by choice or by circumstance, the place for the rites of passage of newbies, a place where the hunters and gatherers of information share the bounty with the tribe. Another, showing off his history knowledge, says that you may think that work camping is a modern phenomenon, but we come from a long, long tradition. We followed the Roman legions, sharpening swords and repairing armor. We roamed the new cities of America, fixing clocks and machines, repairing cookware, building stone walls for a penny a foot and all the hard cider we could drink. We followed the emigration west in our wagons with our tools and skills, sharpening knives, 
fixing anything that was broken, helping clear the land, roof the cabin, plow the fields, and bring in the harvest for a meal and pocket money, then moving on to the next job. Our forebears are the Tinkers. We have upgraded the Tinkers wagon to a comfortable motor coach or fifth wheel trailer. Mostly retired now, we have added to our repertoire the skills of a lifetime in business. We can help run your shop, handle the front or back of the house, drive your trucks and forklifts, pick and pack your goods for shipment, fix your machines, coddle your computers and networks, work your beet harvest, landscape your grounds, or clean your bathrooms. We are the techno tinkers. So there's a lot to unpack there, but it's indicative of how these nomads claim spiritual descent from a long line of groups who they see as all sharing a similar mindset. And this statement portrays and justifies nomadism as a choice based on people's intrinsic preferences, suggesting that there are certain people who are just more naturally inclined to live nomadically. And of course, statements like these have a lot of issues, not least of which is using names like gypsy or tinker, which are considered offensive by the people who these terms are used to describe. And they also completely erase the specific historical context around why certain peoples have lived nomadically throughout history, reframing the nomads of the past through a romanticized 21st century lens. And on top of that, there's something interesting to consider in the way that van dwellers both frame themselves and are framed by outsiders as modern day nomads, like the phrase techno tinkers that I read previously. And this is perhaps just a reference to the fact that these nomads rely on modern vehicles to get around and on modern technology to stay connected to one another. But there's also a more problematic undertone because it implies that nomadism is something that belongs to the past and that van dwellers are a sort of resurgence or revitalization of a way of life that is perceived as having died out to some extent. But on the other hand, we can also read these statements as indicative of how communities, especially ones that aren't tied together by blood, invent ancestral origins for themselves. The van dwellers retroject their origins into a romanticized past, which helps them to both overcome the stigma that's associated with nomadism and make the van dwelling community more cohesive around a shared sense of origins and continual identity. Beyond how these nomads see themselves in relation to the past, what will become of this nomadic population in the future? Only time will tell. As I said, there's no genetic family component binding this community together as there usually is with nomadic populations. And since many of them are elderly, it's not like they're having kids and raising them in this lifestyle, at which point it would become perhaps a more permanent subculture transmissible across generations. And it remains to be seen if some of the younger members of the van dwelling community in turn raise their children in this manner. However, unlike the hobos, for example, who I discussed earlier, it seems that van dwellers are not laboring under the delusion that their circumstances will change and that they will return to a more, quote-unquote, normal, settled way of life, nor do they appear to want to give up their nomadic lifestyle. So it's possible that this van-dwelling nomadic subculture really is here to stay, 
and I can easily imagine that community becoming larger in the years to come. I think anyone who has had to pay rent in an American city has probably at least once fantasized about just giving it all up and hitting the open road with no bills to pay and nothing keeping you in one place. So as van dwelling becomes more popular and more widely known and the resources and information that make van dwelling possible and bring the van dwelling community together become more widespread, I can imagine a sort of ripple effect occurring where more people are drawn into the fold. I think it would be naive, however, to think that van dwelling will ever be anything other than a minority, although it is certainly possible that other forms of nomadism might emerge and evolve, especially in response to climate change. But at the moment, and as I talk about in just about every episode, nomads need settled people around them in order to live. Widespread, full-scale nomadism in the United States especially one based on driving around in vehicles with low gas mileage, is not possible, nor will it ever be. But throughout history, the prevalence of nomadism has waxed and waned in response to a number of factors, from the climate to economics to politics. And it's possible that in light of factors like overpopulation and urban sprawl, not to mention climate change, we could be living in one such period of a prolonged resurgence of nomadism. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in this topic, I encourage you once again to both read the book and watch the movie Nomadland. I'll also be posting some links to additional resources and articles and videos related to this topic on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod. So please check that out. And if you have questions, comments, or feedback, you can always contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.